want to take you on a discussion journey, a simple preventive conflict analysis looking into the status of the Liberian state. I'm your host, Leopoldino Geronimo. Liberia is the only country that had a political regime that from its beginning was constituted exclusively by people who had come from outside. Over a two-third of the population is, is food insecure. And two-third of those people that are insecure and poor actually live in rural places. At least 700,000 people are in extreme poverty, essentially. They don't know where the next meal will come from. My two guests, Baba Sila is a researcher in global studies at Sofia University in Tokyo, Japan, and Ali Kaba is a researcher in international development at the American University. What conflict signs can be discussed about how the Liberian state was formed? The Liberian state has its own peculiarities. The idea of the state began as an exclusionary effort to exclude freed and manumitted slaves from the American society, who obviously were encountering uh, socio-cultural difficulties with assimilating and fully integrating into the American society. When the settlers came to Liberia, they came with the ideas from the antebellum South that they could transplant some of the systems of divisions, aggressions and microaggressions, mistreatments and sufferings that they had themselves experienced to Liberia and that they themselves could create a class system that would see them as masters and the indigenous people as subjects or servants. This was the beginning of the planting of the seeds. And from there on, we saw the development of a system that was based on exclusion, politically, economically, a predatory state that was trapped in the primary industry, dependent on the extraction of natural resources without developing the internal capacities. The ruling classes at the time did not take into consideration the significance of the cultural values, the beliefs, and the day-to-day patterns of existence and the lived experiences of the tribes. And so eventually, although there were considerable changes, there was a general failure on the part of the state to engineer a national society. We did discuss about how state formation in Africa was mostly uh, imposed through the European colonial enterprise. Interestingly enough, one country that stands unique from most, if not out of Africa, I think the only exception would be Ethiopia, is Liberia, given that it was not colonized by any of the European power. When we say here colonized, uh, we should stress that this just means that uh, the European colonial power did not take over Liberia. However, both Europe colonial projects in Africa affected state formation in Liberia, but also the movement of people from repatriated Africans that were enslaved in in the U.S. moving back to to what is now called Liberia kind of mimic a colonial enterprise. 
And there are different ways that people have called this, they've called it settler colonialism. But I think the distinction between Liberia and other settler colonial uh, examples would be that uh, those that settled Liberia were Black, therefore they shared at least that aspect of life with, with the indigenous people they met there. Beyond that, however, the Liberian state itself operated no differently from other colonial projects. The second question I have to dig deeper, how do these root causes you discuss trigger and drive the fragility of the current status of the Liberian state? The things that precipitated the 1980 coup d'etat are still present, perhaps even at a rate that exceeds uh, more than 40 years ago. And so the state formation, although most of the settlers shared the same skin pigmentation with the indigenous people, their mode of operation of establishing the state resembled that of any of the other colonial enterprises in Africa at the time. One significant point to also highlight, Liberia is the only country that had a political regime that from its beginning was constituted exclusively from the period of independence by people who had come from outside of Africa, the American Liberians. You would think the level of exposure and advancements in education the settlers had that they would have made the time to utilize their knowledge early on in building a consolidated environment with the people of tribes. But sadly, that was hardly the case for a very long time. So Liberia has a very interesting history, you know, the first democratic state in Africa, a post-war country, and a country that also elected the first female president in Africa. So to give you a little picture of where the country is, Liberia came from a deadly civil war, a 14-year civil war that started in 1989. Some people can push this to uh, 1980 with a coup d'etat. But essentially, it's a post-war country, very impoverished, highly dependent on concessions. So that's foreign direct investment that defines most of its uh, political economy. And the country also is uh, kind of similar to many African countries in the sense that it has a very high youth barge. The Human Development Index is about 0.48, which makes it uh, the 179 of 189 countries. So Liberia essentially is better than less than 15 countries in the world when it comes to Human Development Index. Uh, so the country is about five point something million. So over a two-thirds of the population is, is food insecure. And two-thirds of those people that are insecure and poor actually live in uh, rural places. And there, there is a historical background to this. Um, at least 700,000 people are in extreme poverty, essentially. They don't know where the next meal will come from. Struggles for democratization in the country, demands for broad-based participation and equitability in resource distribution. In the year 1980, with the toppling, a lot of researchers, of course, characterized it as the true weak party oligarchy. As much as it was bad and a sore spot, still it still remains a sore spot in the history of Liberia. It also presented, I should say, a critical juncture where the people who had toppled the true weak party oligarchy now had the opportunity to right some of the historical wrongs, to treat 
some of the historical pathologies by creating and engineering a free, democratic, equitable, and accountable society, and by promoting national cohesion and unity. Transferring power from the oppressor to the new oppressor, it has been a legacy that was very debated. And Ali, you discussed this in our first episode. Let me build a link with what Baba is saying and hear how would you discuss the linkages of the statehood and securitization of Liberia, looking at the national and regional levels? You pointed some of them already when you mentioned the Liberia was one particular state constituted by people who were not natives in Liberia. Therefore, there was the expectation that with the exposure of capacity, knowledge, academia and all, uh, it would lead to better results. To draw on Baba about the exclusionary beginning of the Liberian states that kind of replicated itself within the political institutions, and in respect to neo-patrimonialism, I think what is interesting about Liberia is that the state created two different layers of society. So one layer of society where the state recognized uh, things like citizenship uh, was meant for the repatriated uh, free slaves from the U.S. And uh, the citizenship in that process excluded uh, the indigenous that were met on the ground. And even within the settlers themselves, they also had a structure in which darker-skinned, repatriated Africans were looked down upon, and most of the political power was held by a mix of what is called mulatto settlers. So the structure then played out within the settlers themselves, then between the settlers and the indigenous. One area that I would like to highlight as a trigger of conflict, but also the, the link to the patrimonial system that was established in Liberia. So the Liberian states first engaged with the indigenous communities in a way that they assumed that there were people living there, so they negotiated uh, with those people so they can have a space to stay. This led to a number of land transactions that excluded the settler locations from the indigenous locations. So the state got divided. I, I, I think Mamdani uh, have highlighted this in other cases where you have two different structures in the society. So you have the urban center, the seeds of the state, where you had a concept of citizenship. Then those outside of that frame were not allowed to, uh, to participate in state formation. And then the state itself, or the uh, the ruling elites that control the state, moved away from this uh, debated, however unique system where they negotiated land transactions with indigenous to passing laws that expropriated uh, land tenure system from the indigenous communities to the state itself. Therefore, every opportunity that a state had to transact with external actor went through those that control the state and excluding uh, the rest uh, of the society. And secondly, the state established a rural political structure in which the selected traditional leaders that represented the state, but also operated uh, almost like an extension of the society that existed. However, those leaders were only accountable to the state. So you, they created this patrimonial relationship between state elites and traditional leaders 
that subjugated rural communities. And as I said in the beginning, the outcome of that is that the wealth of the country uh, was concentrated just among a uh, few people that were in control of the states, plus some of the traditional leaders that were privileged. You struck an important point that I wish to emphasize upon a little, the bifurcated state, what Mamdani calls it, the decentralized despotism. That was the case with Liberia, as, as you rightly pointed out. Need some emphasis, though. The settler state had established laws for themselves, governing people in particularly urban areas where it was established based on culture and religion that people were civilized and Christianized enough or significantly to be considered uh, citizens. And those considered citizens were treated under the color of law, the uh, laws that had been grafted from the U.S. particularly. You find that under the, the Barclay Plan, particularly around about 1904, when the state had in earnest began its, its state consolidation process, when it began those processes, it embarked on a strategy of incorporating strategic local allies into the state structure by creating new state structures that paid allegiance to the state, the Monrovia-based government. And so that, in effect, did not only undermine local authorities, it served to question the very legitimacy upon which traditional leadership has been uh, based on for, for many centuries. And the creation of the Secretary of Interior, what we now call the Ministry of Internal Affairs, with district commissioners and all those chieftaincy positions, were not just there because the state wanted to solely incorporate local people into the governance uh, system of the country. It was particularly, and this is in my view, meant to broadcast the state's power over the hinterland. You find that in 1907, the establishment of the LFF, the Liberia Frontier Force, that was in effect meant to create the, the, the necessary policing power to enforce the government's, uh, the state's collection of taxes and that people are properly subjugated to the state's authority. That came at a cost under President Tupman, because never in the history of the country had the president of the republic been given so much authority. The president had to be given power to make certain decisions, like Ali indicated. Communal lands were always managed by, by local communities. In, in the interior side, whereas in the urban side, a person considered civilized, a citizen of the republic could actually secure a private land through fee simple. In the interior side, traditional people were represented by their chiefs. Would you discuss the political indicators of the current Liberian statehood then? The issues that were alleged to have created the exigency for change still continue to this day. We still have exclusion at many levels in our society, economic inequities, systemic and entrenched political corruption. You talk about land issue as well, issues that have been buried for quite some time. Since the end of our, of our conflict, the issue of land in Nimba County, for an example, 
And land is a very is an existential existential threat to the country. It's an existential threat. So these issues have to be foot, and they have some tribal element. They also have some religious elements to them. And so these issues with land have to be resolved tactfully and quickly, so that uh, at uh, if if they're not resolved, they become a hotbed for conflict. Uh, they're sitting. They are there. They they they're like a part of cake. And they're just waiting for the right moment to be ignited. Baba touched here um, the political indicators of the current Liberian statehood. And I'd like to hear from you, Ali. From the very beginning, uh, the state created a security force uh, to essentially impose on the society instead of the security forces coming from the society. They were actually imposed on, on, on the society. We also talk about the institutional aspect of this, how power was concentrated in the in the position of the presidency. Uh, we also talk about the process of socialization that created division among people based on ethnicity, religion, and, and class and stuff like that. The interesting thing about Liberia is most of these things actually are playing out right now as we speak. So we talk about security, and I think Baba touched on the soft issue. The reality is the Liberian military is not strong enough uh, to impose the type of authority it wants without abusing rights and, and other things. Then you add to the component that the country has been structured around identity. If you touch a group, it is easy for that group to mobilize based on the identity. So then you have kind of ethnic conflict. You talk about the institution. The states stay highly concentrated in the city. In some places, what we call counties, you have less than 25 police officers in, in the whole county. In some counties, they're not, the judiciary system is not well established, so there's no prisons. So for the state to impose, it has to be done in a negative way. So I think what Baba is mentioning in respect to Chief of Staff's statement is that it, it reminds people where we've come from as a country. So as I said, in the beginning, you had our security force established with the sole purpose of expanding the states in the interest of a selective few. We had a military coup in 1980, and the military also imposed on the society, abusing human rights. We had a civil war, and similarly, the civil war was managed by groups that abused the rights of Liberian citizens. So we move from this history. Now, when you hear... The, the chief of staff speaking like that, it reminds people about where we've come from as a society. Now, the good thing about Liberia is, is that it's structured in a way that is very difficult for even the state, including the state, for any one group to monopolize exclusive power. So you have to legitimize your power. You have to go through the state institutions to be able to control the society. Now, the problem with the state institutions, as I said before, is that the capacity is very weak and there are issues of corruptions um, in, in, in the system. Um, and when you compound that by the fact that, as Baba said, even though this, this official statistic would tell you that 3% of the population is employed, these are very fragile employments. These are employments that don't come with security, for example. Most of the young people in Liberia are either riding uh, what they call pen motorbike, 
are engaged in artisanal mining, which is a security threat in itself because it created room for mobilization. They are in drug trades, for example. That's also a huge component in, in, in the country. And in, in an area where, as I said, the policing power of the state is so weak and limited that the state has to work with the society for the state to function. How would you discuss the linkages of the statehood and securitization of Liberia, placing it not only in the national, but also regional levels? What I'm more concerned about when it comes to threats to the Liberian state, Ali mentioned the youth bulge. About 59 or 60 percent of our citizens are young people. We have about 3.9 or so um, percent uh, unemployment. Uh, that's very significant. Most of the people that are employed in the uh, artisanal or sector, these employments are, are tenuous. They're not stable employment. They're, not, they're very unpredictable. And it's not just about the, the hardware of conflict, it's about the software. I like to mention this. You find that when most of the conflicts and issues that sort of attract people to conflict becomes very alluring when issues that should provide the incentives for them to be dissuaded from engaging in conflictual activities, that conflict with peace and security are not emphasized. And so employment issues are very critical. Lately, we've seen the chief of staff of the armed forces of Liberia engaging and speaking uh, too much on, on what I think that, that should be issues that civil authorities should be addressing. Now, I'm not saying as the, the chief of staff cannot speak in his capacity to issues of national security or cannot speak as a private citizen who has a, an entitlement per the constitution to a free speech. What I am saying is assertions made by anyone occupying that position is subject to several interpretations and perhaps misinterpretations as, as well. And so it is the, the chief of staff of the armed forces of Liberia. These are very crucial times in the history of our country. As a country, though, we are in a region where in, in West Africa, uh, we have Guinea, Ivory Coast, and Sierra Leone. I think the region itself is tired enough that we may not have a repeat of a civil war that starts from the border to come into the country, for example. We may not see things like that. But Liberia is definitely um, within a situation right now that tensions are very high. So you could see flash violence. You could see highly disruptive political uh, tension in the society. And to compound that, right before the 2018 election, most of the resources that used to come to patronize the citizens, for example, the mining, the logging, and agricultural concessions, were bringing in a lot of money that the state could use to pacify the society. Secondly, we had an international police force on mill. We also had the American government really investing in our security sector. So there were a lot of resources on the ground to pacify the society. Those resources have left. Most of these institutional supports that we had from outside, they've all left. So we're in a fragile environment, but also another condition that the state is not strong enough to apply certain type of force. So it has to operate within the system itself, uh, uh, within the society itself. Otherwise, there's no way the state can be able to function in your barbarian 
concept of state where you have a, a monopoly over violence. The state definitely has monopoly over violence if you consider every other groups and institutions within the society that may be able to compete with the state. To close, based on your research, what is the sentiment of the Liberian citizens in the country and the diaspora? Land management has always not favored local people. Local people have not been consulted on land deals. They've been given the, the, the short end of the bargain. They've not been consulted on land deals. They've not been stakeholders to some of these discussions. When land concessions are, are, are done, take for instance, the Sami Dhabi land concession, a very controversial one, I think it was in 2009. There, no, no socioeconomic impact survey was done. No environmental survey was done. And so people did not have an idea. People could not project what socioeconomic impact the land deal would have had on the local people in, I think, Bami and other counties there. I think it was bordering like four counties. In no time, we saw that people's farmland, where people's plots were being taken, essentially encroached upon by, in their eyes, encroached upon by the companies that were being showed up by elements of the national police to protect them. And you've, we've, we saw that um, the reports have it that people were also being prevented from accessing the waterways. They were being prevented also from accessing forests and forest resources. And mind you, the people who live up interior, up in the, in the interior parts of our country, the forest means a lot more to them than it would mean to people residing in urban areas. They go to the forest not just for firewood, they go there to hunt. And in the, once they go there to hunt, they also go there to collect tree backs and roots for medicinal purposes. Not that they were only prevented from accessing waterways where they could fish and do whatnot to, co to, to collect essential proteins for, for feeding purposes. They became poachers on their own communal lands that had been forcefully taken. They were essentially dispossessed. Not just that, the ancestral land, ancestral graves were desecrated, you know? So all of these different things affected the people now. What happened? When you take people land from them, they cannot grow their food. These are agrarian people. 70% of your people are agrarian people. You take their land from them. They do not have the resource by which they've existed for all their lives. They do not have any other skill set, you know, on toolkit by which to live. What you essentially make them become rather members of the reserve army of labor, how Marx referred to them, the reserve army of labor. So these people, the only thing they're left with to sell is the strength of their muscles. So Liberia, I don't know we said this before, but Liberia, you know, independent in uh, 1847. By 1920s, uh, the 1926s to be precise, Liberia signed uh, a huge concession contract in which she gave up about a million acres of land to uh, a rubber company, an American-based rubber company called Firestone. Okay? 
And that land was actually taken from, obviously, the indigenous communities that lived on the land, but the state had already changed the rules around land management. So the state could say that they did it legally. Nonetheless, there were people living there and displaced the people. So those people were displaced, the cultures and what have you, would destroy their livelihood were destroyed. And it just became cheap labor now for these companies. By the time we reached in the 1960s, um, the Liberian economy were exclusively based on foreign direct investment and raw material export. For example, uh, the government revenue rose from $25 million uh, to $48 million from 1959 to 1960. And again, at this period in time, the state was still divided into two different zones of operations where you had the urban center and where the state was located. Most of these resources were spent in these areas and the rural places were neglected. By the time we come into the, into the 70, the Liberian GDP grew up to 11%, one of the highest in the world, in fact. So the economy was growing at a rapid pace, but the development was not evenly distributed. It was still highly, highly concentrated in Monrovia and other coastal urban centers. In fact, uh, some people have called the Liberian state at that time as a new colonial state ran by plantation economy or foreign uh, uh, investments and the U.S. government. So the Liberian state has been in its in peculiar position from its beginning up to now. So by 1977, 20 Liberia-owned logging companies owned by those people that were in charge of the state, 20 logging companies control almost 20% of the surface area, the forest in Liberia. 25 companies controlled by the ruling elites that did not even make up three about 3% 3 of the population. And that model that we took from the beginning of the, 19, uh, the, the 1920s replicated itself throughout the Liberia story up to the post-war era. By 2016, the Liberian land surface, over 50% of the land surface in Liberia had already been contract out, contracted out to foreign investors. Of course, the mantra behind that is that those investments will bring enough revenue for development purposes. However, it has to first displace people. So those people that are displaced, that's why Baba mentioned, create a surplus pool of young people that are now socialized within their communities. They're also not socialized within the state because the state don't have the capacity to provide education and other social services. So this, this group of young people are left in the society to fend for themselves, to organize themselves. So these are some of the conflict triggers we are seeing in Liberia. The economic growth that you refer to, it's based on the global indicators and it looks at the countries in relation to one to another, but the growth reported that Liberia is experiencing, even the World Bank, it says that Liberia has experienced a growth of about 3% in 
even though there was the COVID pandemic in between, but overall it grew. So if you are mentioning that to a regular citizen, there is a sense of, um, of hope, right? But then I would like to understand, Barbara, with your view, pointing these indicators, earlier you mentioned a few elements of poverty there, although the civil society, at your point of view, there are those who are very active. But let's look at the people and compare the economic indicators that Liberia is displaying at the moment. What do you say? Let me say that no matter what the economic indicators say, if actual investments are not made in factors that reproduce growth, that reproduce economic benefits for the common and ordinary people in the country, that they can experience improvements in their lives, that the person who lives in Zingshak can earn the income to transform that shock to bricks, to cement structure. If a person who eats inadequately every day, one meal, cannot acquire the income to eat at least three meals a day, then that growth is not being reflected in the lives of the people. But this is not strange. And that's the case with Liberia today. Many of our people live on the breadline. But it it isn't strange. It is a pattern of historical institutionalism. It's path dependency. And maybe just to add before I close up, another aspect of Liberia also that, that makes the country to be highly externally looking is foreign aid. Foreign aid has been both a means for political elites to maintain control over the state, but also for external actors to control the country development policy. So they've gotten into this unholy marriage between the ruling elites, foreign investors, and the foreign aid industrial complex. Combined, they've hijacked the trajectory of the society in a way that just few people tend to benefit Thank you, Ali. Thank you, Baba. This was a, an interesting discussion. We were trying to get through the details of a preventive conflict analysis, the status of the Liberian state. I'm your host, Leopoldino Geronimo.